Hey friends, it's Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast. Can you believe it? We made it to episode number 20. And I can't think of a better way to celebrate than to have legendary songwriter James McMurtry. Artists like Sarah Jaros have covered him. Jason Isbell has brought him out on tour. John Mellencamp describes his songwriting as James writes like he's lived a lifetime. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to talk about his start in songwriting and his inspiration. I am just thrilled that he had the time to sit down and talk with us. And it's one of my favorite talks. So we're going to jump into it. Episode number 20, James McMurtry. So I've known of your music, your songwriting for, for years. I remember it has to be maybe around the early 90s my dad had he would play this uh cassette of Candyland and that was my introduction to you and i remember just playing that album over and over and for me i always have questions i i got to see you in 2018 when you were with Jason Isbell and i'd love to know what was your introduction to guitar when did you start was it an early in life thing or kind of like midway I think I was uh, I was seven years old. My mother taught me a couple of chords, and uh, I just went from there. So, when you started, when you started playing guitar, was it ever formal lessons, or was it kind of like as you go along and you kind of pick by ear and then just choose what you want to do and just kind of slowly take it in? Yeah, I never had formal lessons. Um, I just you know stole what I could. <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of the best thing to do is because I feel like sometimes it's learning by ear. You you choose the things that you enjoy and what you gravitate towards, and it's just like, cool, I'm going to make this my own. <laughs> yeah, well, they say the style is based on limitation, as John Hartford said. So I don't know. I, I didn't learn guitar in a conventional manner, and I, I still can't play like other people do. But so yeah, I, I can play like I do, so I guess that's enough most of the time. And I feel, isn't that, that's kind of the discovery of when you're being a songwriting artist, it's finding like your voice. And there are some people that are great players, but then when it comes to songwriting, they're just like, well, what should I play? <laughs> well, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of different muscles. And you, know, you can run into trouble trying to play a song because you get lost in a guitar solo and then suddenly you got to think in English. And, uh, you know, David Bromberg told me, you got to give yourself at least, you know, four bars to get back to English before. <laughs> now, when you were picking up guitar and you started to play through, what are some early songs that you enjoyed just, you know, listening to that you're, you're gravitated towards and you were just like, this is interesting? Well, I remember the first one I learned to pick out note for note was Wildwood Flower. Um, and I remember the day I learned it, it was on my, my friend's mother had a Yamaha nylon string. And I remember I was just messing around with it one day and suddenly I... Out came Wildwood Flower, and it's like, oh, wow, I can do that. You know, when you learn by ear, do you feel like when you know the song really well, just kind of like inside and out, you don't have to force it or find it on guitar, it kind of flows a little bit? Uh, yes, yeah, sometimes. Um, other times you do have to, <laughs> you really have to practice. I found that lately I've been doing these, you know, live streams, and it's just a whole other thing because... You know, you've got you've got a camera right under your nose, so everybody's right there in your living room, and anything can distract you in ways that it wouldn't on on a stage in a club. You know, a fly on a computer screen can just drive <laughs> you crazy. 
or the dogs barking at the wrong time. And you better have your solos practiced and you know, rehearsed if you're going to do that. You can't be fishing around, which uh, unfortunately I have been doing, but I've been getting better you know, with the practice thing. Now for you, especially now with, as you were saying in those live streams, what, what to you, what do you find are some good practice methods or things for you to just like walk through? Well, I haven't really got that far. I'm trying to get back into guitar because, you know, for a long time there, when I was young, I sat around the house playing, you know, that was my escape and I could, I could go for hours playing, you know, and then after, you know, about 30 years of touring, and regular gigs during the week when we're home, the guitar came to mean work to me. So if I'm just home sitting around, which I am these days because there's no touring, uh, it's taken me a while to get back into just picking up a guitar and playing it for the fun of it. Because, you know, it used to, even even if I were home, if I were off the road, you know, I'd have a Continental Club Wednesday night, uh, Continental Gallery Tuesday night, and then weekend gigs. And if we're on the road, we were playing six nights a week. So I didn't touch a guitar when I wasn't working. Which you mentioned the Continental Club. I have some friends in Austin. I thought this was so cool. And I remember you mentioned this when I saw you live. And you were like, if you're ever in Austin and you gave the date, we're always here. I think that's still so badass that, that you guys. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's also, too, like there are local, local folks that are playing in between. And then you're the, the band goes on at the end of the night. Yeah, well, they're, you know, I'm local too, really. <laughs> I live, well, I live in Lockhart now, 30 miles south, but that's still local. Um, you know, that's, that's our home gig, and hopefully it will be there if and when things open up again. I don't know. I think the club's been closed since March. That's, a, that's another thing. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if touring's ever going to come back because, you know, the, 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 the agencies are saying, 2022 at this point okay what existing independent clubs are going to be there in 2022 if there's no business between now and then you know i'm sure all the live nation gigs will still be there just like chili's will be there in the restaurant world but that live nation is the chili's (laughs) well i don't know yeah they've done some good stuff too they i think they're the ones there's a there's a new club in uh, brighton massachusetts that we played Mm-hmm. Brighton Music Hall. I don't know if that's Live Nation or some other big one, but but whoever did that get it, that that's a great room. <laughs> they set that thing up right. Now, for the years of touring, when you know when you started out playing guitar, when did you start to make the connection into songwriting? And so it's no longer just, or was that the way that you always viewed it? I don't know if I viewed it as as well. I mean, the, the people the, the people I knew as songwriters played guitar because that's what they could play. I don't remember worrying about where songs came from until somebody introduced me to the music of Chris Christopherson. Uh, he was the first artist that, you know, was introduced to me as a songwriter up to that point. I didn't, you know, I wanted to be Johnny Cash when I grew up. Uh, I hadn't put any thought to where Cash's songs came from. Uh, do you remember some of the early songs that you wrote, some of the first ones? Well, the first one I ever finished that I would play for people uh, eventually became um, Talking at the Texaco on the first record. Uh, though when, when I first wrote it, I was playing in like beer gardens around San Antonio for, you know, 50 bucks and free beer. 
if that, um, and mostly cover songs because that's what they wanted. That's what you know. To get a gig like that, you had to you had to know a couple of Jimmy Buffett songs, and the food and beverage guy would say, "Okay, hire him." Uh, but um, so I started. You know, I worked that song into my set sometime in the mid '80s, and uh, I guess the next one was "Crazy Wind," and uh, I had them. You know, I just mixed them in with the cover tunes. I believe Texaco, I wrote the bridge to that actually on the way to the studio. And when I had it, when I played it before, it didn't have a bridge. Wow. Do you feel like sometimes, you know, now when you're writing songs, does it come in bits and pieces or does it come in skeleton structure or is it, can it just, it, it kind of always changes a little bit? Yeah, it usually comes in bits and pieces and it can take years. You know, it's a good thing somebody invented the laptop so I can just file all these things on a hard drive and, you know, I don't have to be, you know, going through boxes full of legal paper like I used to. Now, your 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 first record, if, if I, and I want to make sure I get this right, but your, your father is Larry McMurtry, who's mm-hmm. a very famous writer, definitely screenplays, that you, you met John Mellencamp. And well, you were you kind of you kind of somehow got a demo tape to him. Well, he hired my father to write a, a screenplay for a movie that he eventually put out. But they were supposed to get together for a rewrite meeting, and I was done with Texas. I, I wanted to move to Nashville. I knew some people there that were staff writers and and, and some that were fairly successful pitching songs. So that you know, I wasn't really looking for my own record deal. You know, I, th- I thought I'd go join the Nashville crowd, and but I had a little, a little, you know, four or five song demo that I had used to get gigs around San Antonio, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess this might have been a different tape. Yeah, this one was all original. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I had four or five songs by that point, and uh, and Larry and John were supposed to get together, so I gave the, the cassette to, to Larry and said, you know, give that to John. I was hoping John would want to cut one of my songs so that you know, that way when I got to Nashville, somebody would rent me an apartment. Because you, know, you, you get in Nashville, everybody's a songwriter in Nashville. You can't list that as an occupation. You know, they, they want to know what you do for money. But if I'd have had a John Mellencamp cut, they would have understood that. I mean, yeah. Uh, but uh, John didn't want to cut my songs, but he was interested in producing for some reason. So he got me the record deal with, uh, with Sony. Actually, it wasn't yet Sony. It was still CBS, Columbia CBS. And okay. It was, um, but yeah, wow, that, that's, that's how it. that worked. That's interesting. So when you were writing those songs, you were thinking, ah, oh, you know, you know, I've got people in Nashville. I got friends in Nashville. That's the route I should go. Like, I, well, that's I, the route I, I figured I could go. I didn't know anybody that had a, a deal as an artist. Yeah. I knew people that had publishing deals or were staff writers, salaried staff writers, that kind of thing. Now, how how was it when you were comprising those first couple of records? Because those were probably with Columbia. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like there was, you know, there was enough give and take in the songs that you were making? Like you had creative control over the things that you wanted to do? Well, you know, John produced the first one and nobody was going to mess with John Mellencamp at that time. He just put <laughs> out Lonesome Jubilee, which was multi-platinum. So he, and he was executive producer on the second one. There wasn't, there were no A and R guys in the studio on either of those sessions, so it wasn't really a matter of my creative control. It was more like, you know, in the first case, the first record, John, you know, he's a producer, and I pretty much did what he wanted, and, and I was happy with it. 
That's you know, awesome. Yeah, Wanchick produced the second one, and it was all, you know, what I came to understand at that point was records are collaborative. Unless you are an artist-producer, <laughs> uh, then it's just a major collaboration. You know, I give them the songs and the vocal and some guitar and maybe some arrangements, you know. Uh, and then later, you know, later on, I got to produce my own records, so it changed over the years. Do you feel like, too, like in that sort of back-and-forth collaborative that there were points where it was like he suggested an idea and you were like, wow, I'm going to take that for the next, like, 20 songs that I do. <laughs> Just, like, yeah, file yeah. that away. Well, it's a lot of production tricks. When we made the, the, those first couple of records, that was two-inch tape. We didn't even have an automated board. Uh, they had, like, an old Neve 24-track. Yeah, I guess a Studer machine, a Studer two-inch machine. And so, you know, you couldn't fix things like you can now in, in Pro Tools. You couldn't move beats around. And we weren't doing click track. We were doing more like Rolling Stones approach. So, you know, you take the, tr the, the, you'd use the take with the most life in it. And if there was a little dip in the groove or something, then you'd use trickery to fool the listener around it. And John was real good with percussion. You know, he'd say, Kenny, go in there and hit your bongos or hit your tambourine right there just a couple of times. That's like sort of distracts the ear <laughs> a little bit. And, and I used that later when I was producing. And even before, you know, some of that Lloyd Maines stuff that I did for Sugar Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, Maines gave me a lot of free reign. I used a couple of Mellencamp tricks to fix some stuff that... You know, some weird little groove problems that we had in a couple of tracks, and it worked. And so, you know, by the time I got to producing myself, I'd already worked with Mellencamp and Wanchik and Don Dixon and Lloyd Maines, and I learned a little bit from all of them. Uh, so that really helped me. Uh, it didn't take too long for me to use up all the tricks I remembered. So, <laughs> like the last couple of records, I've been hiring outside guys again because it's you know it's time to go back to school. Do you find, too, that there's something about a band playing live that's not using click that sometimes captures the energy more or just the feel? Yeah, yeah, you, you get the magic take that way. With a click, you're building stuff. But then, then there are bands that can play to a click and and still get magic, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's guys like Waddy Wachtel and Kenny Arnoff, you know, they, they can stand in the middle of a full-auto firefight in Lebanon and make pretty good music. <laughs> most of us mortals aren't that way. Do you, do you find th the most joy playing live, or is it also in the recording process, or do you find it could be a balance of both? Uh, I like live better. I don't like the studio. Studios tend to be claustrophobic. You've toured around, you know, so many times around the world and playing different venues. Are, are there concerts and shows that stick out to you as some of your favorites? Uh, there are definitely venues I like. I like the Park West in Chicago. Uh, well, pretty much anywhere in Chicago, really. <laughs> Fitzgerald's Martyrs. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the memories of the road is kind of a blur. I don't... You know, I will say from seeing you live, your band is insanely tight. I was watching it and it just seemed you guys strolled up and you started playing and I was just like... It you know not a beat missed and it's and at one point mm. your guitarist walked off stage for a second and I was like I think this is getting to the solo part where is he where is he mm. and he just casually walks back on straps on his guitar and just plays a lot I was just like that's so badass I was like mm. was that one it was the, the Isbel shows you're talking about yeah because huh, we well, didn't have a regular drummer on that we had Jeff Botta uh, yeah Darren couldn't make that run 
Actually, but I don't know. There was, there was a, we did a couple of ISBO runs, actually. Uh, this was maybe in January of 2018. This was right after he, he just won a Grammy, and I okay. was just like... Yeah, was, that was yeah. that last run. That was, that was Bada, yeah. That yeah, was, we, it we was had a different so feel, but oh, it, but it, it was it was wonderful, and you know when when you write songs, I notice, and you've talked about this too. It's it's a lot more storytelling songs. Was that intentional right away? Because you know other songwriters go, I want to pour in my heart, out, I want to share all these things, and there are others that are like, I like to tell this through story. No, I don't. I don't like to emote too much. I I, I write fiction. I just write fiction through song. You know, it's it's much more fun to make stuff up. I heard a story. I think it was Paul McCartney saying when he was writing uh, Martha, and George Harrison was like, "What's that about?" And he was like, "I don't know." You know, I, I wrote it, and and then he, George Harrison's like, "How can you do that? How can you just make something up?" And Paul McCartney's like, "I don't know. I just can." Yeah. yeah. And I've and do you find too when you do that that approach of you know, creating like that, there are just so many more options and you can invent these weird characters and different stories and interesting backgrounds that you can kind of live through a little bit. Well, exactly. Um, I don't worry about living through them, but I, I mostly write songs backwards. I get a couple of lines and a melody and I think, okay, who said that? And I try to envision the character that would have said that. And then maybe there's a story that goes with the character. Uh, so I work, I work back from the lines to the story. Now, you said as you progress to, you've taken on more of the production. Like, do you do the majority of that? Well, obviously now at home, but do you, you know, at what point do you go like, okay, I can, I can demo this out. I can start to lay this out. This has footing. It's got legs and I can, I can see where this is going to go. Well, it's, it's really been over 10 years since I produced a record. Uh, so I don't really remember how that, like, and I listen to the stuff now and I think, damn, you're a better guitar player then than you are now, James. <laughs> better practice. <laughs> but the, like, the last last couple of records, um, well, I did, I did you know, C.C. Adcock produced Complicated Game, and then there's the, we got one in the can right now that Ross Hogarth is currently mixing. Oh, and, that's amazing. I mean, Ross had a lot to do with the arrangements on these. He He'd find stuff. He said, "No, take an extra bar there, man. Before you sing that line, it'll be more effective." Stuff like that. Stuff that I might have known at some point in the past, but had forgotten. Which is, you know, that's why I'm hiring guys again to, <laughs> so I can learn another round of tricks. So if I ever get back to producing myself, then then I'll, I'll know some things. But um, I don't know. I, I don't really want to own enough gear to make a record myself at home. <laughs> Oh, that now that's interesting because you know sometimes people are at the polar opposite. They weren't like, I want to learn everything so I can do it myself. Do you find like something gets lost from the song if a person just it, it's just solely them and they're just doing uh, too much? It depends on who you are. I mean, Prince yeah. could do it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just not that interested in the technical aspects of it. So that stuff is a means to an end. So I mean, I would at least have to hire an engineer. Again, if I were to produce, I mean, and I, I, I was forced. I, I worked with Stuart Sullivan on most of the stuff I did, and you know, the guy's got really good ears. He can tell what needs fixing, and he'll get a good drum sound up before you even do anything. You know, that's and I'm not gonna. You know, that, that's something I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna go in there and place mics on drums and try to figure that out. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Either. I can't even <laughs> hear it. You know. I, you know 
So do you feel like that, you know, sometimes maybe that's where songwriters or artists struggle because they're trying to wear so many hats and it's like it, you kind of have to define the thing that you want to do and just live into it? Uh, I don't know. You, you can't write a script for yourself. You don't want to be rigid in your parameters, but you, you do whatever works at the time. I mean, like, like you, your introduction to me was, was Candyland. Well, I barely played guitar on that record. I think I played on one song, Dusty Pages. Um, that was my second record. The first record ate up most of the songs I already had. And so when I went in the studio for Candyland, I had seven songs that were kind of complete and finished it in the studio and then wrote a couple more whole songs in the studio. So like all my brain cells at the time went towards songwriting. I didn't have anything left for guitar, you know, but I got the songs written and got the, you know, got the record out, moved on to the next thing. It's kind of with records. You remember that early video game? I think it was called Frogger. Yeah. Where you got that little frog and you're trying to hop across the creek on the backs of alligators and turtles. And like every record is to get you to the next gator back. You know, and I don't worry about it too much once it's out and done with. You, know, you got to get on to the next thing. But, you know, my business turned more and more into a live touring business than than, than a recording artist. Because uh, when I started out, we toured to promote to promote record sales. Because yeah. the model was, you know, you sold a bunch of records and you, you lived off the artist royalties. Well, I never saw any artist royalties till till it, uh, we can't make it here, you know, that because that record was made so cheap and it sold enough that I actually saw artist royalties, not just songwriter. Um, but, you know, the business changed. Napster came along. Sales fell off. Even big artists couldn't make it on record sales which was okay for us because by then, you know, we were making it on the road. We had a really stripped down operation, basically four guys in a van. I didn't even pull a trailer because I hate trailers. You know, we take the back two seats out of the van, pile the gear up back there. So we profited on the road, but after a while you have to put a record out so that people will, will write about you in the press. And then, that way you can get people into your shows and, and continue to profit because otherwise everybody loses interest. So it's like, you know, we used to tour to promote records. Now we make records to promote tours. Though so that was, that was the pre pandemic model anyway. I don't know what we're going to do now. Well, you've been doing live shows and, you know, live shows on the internet, which have been awesome. I've been watching a few of them. Do you feel like you can reach more people all at once? It's kind of like that huge, where it's like somebody sees that you go live automatically, this this social media world. Well, you can. Um, I mean, I have to work with, uh, with much younger people who understand this kind of thing because I don't really know how to maximize the online thing. Uh, I've been uh, talking to some guys. There, there's something called Sessions that was uh, started by the same guy that started Pandora Radio years ago. And the, the whole thing with me is just trying to reach more people further away. <laughs> because it's like in my live, my live shows, I was never a huge draw, but I could fill a 300-seat club pretty much anywhere in the country and some of Canada, and then in Europe, I could fill 100-seat closets all the way across Europe. And and that kept me going. You know, that was uh, that made me viable. Well, now, you know, I can, I can do a 1 o'clock live stream here in Texas and still reach people in Europe and reach people in California, but I want to be able to reach all the way around the backside 
I want the Asians. I want the Africans. I want, I want, you know, I want to get a little bit of everybody. I don't see why it couldn't be done. Um, I need to talk to these young people to figure out how to do it. Well, I think you're doing a fantastic job because these live streams have been awesome. And, you know, I, I noticed too, like you, you go for a lot of 12 string guitars when you're playing a lot. Do you have certain tunings that you gravitate towards more when you're, you're writing and you're thinking of ideas? Well, yeah, I've got some weirdo tunings, and some of which I just stumbled onto. There, there's that 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 weird open C I use with that uh, that Pepto Bismol colored Guild guitar. It's basically Keith Richards open C. You know, you, you do it like five strings open G capoed on the fourth fret. But unlike Richards, I leave the low string on and tune it down to a C. So I basically have a one string bass player there. And I can fret it across the capo, mm -hmm. and if you know if I fret it on the fourth fret where the capo is, I get a low four, and I can hammer the four chord over it, and it works out pretty nice. Well, I had a hard time figuring out how to do the same thing in D, and I did this because you know you could tune that low string to a D, but then you can't reach it from your capoed position. Yeah. Uh, so I happened to run into David Wilcox, and we did a show together somewhere. Denver Zoo, it was, outdoor thing. And he already knew that tuning. And I said, well, how do you do it in D and be able to fret it? He said, well, you use a second capo, dummy. You know? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, well, that's the, so that became the, what I call the Melinda tuning. And it was when I got to that, that double capo, open D, weird tuning, that's when I got the song Melinda. It kind of fell out of that guitar in that tuning. Do you feel like certain tunings or, or certain picking patterns gravitate you to certain, I don't know, feels or thoughts or lyrical ideas? Um, it can, yeah. I mean, I mean, having a lot of guitars helps because, you know, a different <laughs> guitar hits your brain different. And then you think differently and you, you'll get a song that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. I had a song called Charlemagne's Hometown. I don't play it on the guitar I wrote it on. I wrote it on a baritone. It's when I first got a baritone guitar and something about those low strings. I think I was playing through a twin or something and it just uh, put me in mind, you know, brought those lines out. I don't know why. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to use as many tones as I can get. I'd, I'd like to get an acoustic baritone for those, um, for the live streams. I'm just kind of afraid to go in a guitar shop right now. <laughs> You got all these surfaces that people are touching and passing back and forth, and it's just yeah. stay inside yeah. for now. Yeah. Do you find when you have those moments of like you feel like oh, I don't have any inspiration, or you're trying to draw, what are things that stir it up, or just kind of get that creative pot going, essentially? No, well, having a deadline. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, most of the songs I've written, I wrote since I had a record deal when songwriting became my job. And uh, sometimes I just flat can't finish a song unless I have to. And there's most of the songs on this, this new record are that way, which is also why I don't play much guitar on this record. Because <laughs> it's sort of a repeat of Candyland where you know, I just had to put it all into finishing these songs in time to record them because we had the studio time booked. But that, that does make sense because I feel like deadlines are a good thing. Otherwise, there's always this open-ended, like, this song could be finished. They can be a Maybe good thing. <laughs> but in, the, yeah. in the old days, you know, in the Columbia days, 
it was all around singles and nobody really cared about songs that weren't going to make singles and there's there's some casualties on those early records where I, you know I, I, I didn't quite finish the song I, like I stuck words in places to make it sound like it was a song and they made great tracks but uh, you know there, there's some things on those first two records well the second record and I would say uh, yeah hands like range is just not quite there you know, it's got nice imagery, but it's it's less than the sum of its parts. And it doesn't quite close. It just doesn't quite make sense. Mm. So it was rushed because we had to get it done. But you know, this this last record I got I got lucky. I don't there's no filler on this because there's there's no need for filler anymore. If you're gonna put a record out now, it's gonna be on shuffle. <laughs> and you know, people are gonna hear every last song on it. They're not just gonna listen three songs deep and turn them in go on to the next thing. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that record. I still have my tickets to your show at Club Cafe in Pittsburgh when it does happen because I will be there because I'm looking forward happen. to it. I have a feeling... Well, well, what's the name of that street that goes uh, parallel to the river? Club Cafe see. is just off of that. Oh, uh, it's uh, Carson. Okay, yeah. I saw, a picture. I, saw, like, I saw like a picture in the news... Looking down like that, that uh, that bar on the corner, Carson mm-hmm. and Twelfth, I guess. Or is it Twelfth Street that Club it Cafe is off on? It, it probably is. It's further down on Carson. That yeah. is just the whole area in Pittsburgh where it's nothing but bars. It's yeah. just <laughs> I really miss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I I know it will be there, and I'm looking forward to seeing when you get back on the road because you are. A phenomenal songwriter. You're you're kind with your time, and your songs are just they're wonderful. They're songs that I can just listen on to repeat over and over. Look forward to the new record, and James, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. Thanks, Mike. It's still hard to believe that it's episode 20. We've had so many amazing guests so far. We've got some great ones lined up, some that we've already recorded, we've yet to release. So I just wanna say thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying these episodes, if you enjoyed past episodes, please head on over to Apple Podcasts, write a review. Every single review helps us get the name of this podcast out there and spread the word. Share your favorite episode on social media. Tag us at Songwriting for Guitar on Instagram. And if you've got questions, you want guests that you would love to see on here, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at mike at songwritingforguitar.com. That does it for this week. This episode was edited and produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Thanks for listening.